0: David and Rebecca, that was beautiful. I I knew Rebecca could sing. No, I did, David. Wonderful gift. A singing preacher. I've never been that. (laughs) Never been that guy, but uh, what a gift. It's great to be here with you again the last time I was behind this pulpit. At least I think it was the last time was 1996, I know you remember it well, 1996, November, I was on the way to the Georgia Baptist Convention, it was Sunday night worship, y'all remember those days, Sunday night worship, and actually it was a good crowd, and the reason I was preaching here is the search committee from First Baptist Marietta needed a neutral location to hear me, and then Pastor Steve Davis graciously opened up the, uh, of course, every preacher was glad to have somebody to substitute on Sunday night, but that's another story. But to come here and experience generous hospitality, this wonderful space. And through the years, I've gotten to know several of you, and we've been apart together. And by the way, uh, following that time, I was called at Marietta and served a, a wonderful, generative nine years there. So I'm so grateful for the ways that, as congregations, if you live long enough, you begin to see things overlap, and you begin to appreciate the ways that we participate one another in one another's lives and including corporate worship the one thing that seems very unique in particular to us is also the one thing that unites us not only generation to generation that wonderful theme as you celebrate your 175th but really what we're speaking of on a global level it's what we do in the family of faith living together generation To generation, for we depend on these stories, new and old, from each generation to the very next. Thank you again. Almost Dr. David Hughes. And by the way, I know he was AWOL last week. You, you probably do know that he was gone and missing from the, from the offices of the church. He was working. He was turning in revisions of his chapters of his dissertation. He even submitted one at um, nearly midnight on Friday night. I remember it popping up the next morning on my email and I thought, I'm not reading that this weekend. I got better things to do. But he's hard at work, and we're going to look forward to celebrating uh, the Reverend Dr. David Hughes as a part of this uh, community of faith. Let's pray together. All week long, O Lord, we've been asked to remember. Remember our loved ones in prayer. Remember our world that is troubled. Remember our nation for direction. Remember our church that seeks to make that qualitative difference in a waiting world. Now, Lord, we ask that you remember us, that as we continue in worship, that our minds may be open to think critically with the mind of Christ, that our hearts may be moved, that we may love in the mercy of Christ, that our bodies be strengthened, that we may serve in the very name of Christ. For we offer this up in the name of Christ. Amen. So when soon-to-be Dr. Hughes invited me to preach, uh, he shared with me the theme and he said, you know, Greg, I'd like for us to just give some focus on maybe some of the matriarchs and patriarchs uh, in the biblical tradition. So I appreciated that, that kind of tip on, on how we're focusing our liturgy, at least for, for today. And so my mind began to think about, well, who are the great people in the Bible that that we want to hold before us and of course you think about people like Abraham and Sarah and then there's Moses and Aaron and Miriam and 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 then there's Deborah the judge and Ruth the loyalist and and David the warrior and Solomon the wise and Esther who was strategically placed as the savior of Israel and the New Testament <laughs> They have a stellar list too. Of course, there's Mary and Elizabeth, who are the early adopters of the Jesus movement. We have um, then we have Peter and James and John, and not far behind, of course, is Paul, who authored nearly a quarter or more than a quarter of our New Testament. All of these names and many more came to mind, but but everybody knows about these names. Everybody and. That's kind of our culture, isn't it? We really do want to focus on those who have made a name for themselves. So about uh, sometime last year, our director of alumni services and outreach, she, she approached me and she said, Greg, you need to get on TikTok. I said, no, I don't, Nikki, I, I I can't even handle Facebook. No, 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 we we need to get a TikTok account, that's where social media is at, and if we want to be relevant, we've got to start uh, our own TikTok account. And I said, well, I don't know anything about TikTok, I'm not even real clear how to spell it, is it with a C or a K or both, I don't know, and she said, Greg, just start looking at TikTok videos, and I don't know if any of you have a TikTok account, Can some of y'all nod to say you do or don't, anybody, somebody, someone? Y'all, she does? You're pointing out? Good, okay. You can follow, be one of my followers, okay? I've only got like three. All right, so the way TikTok works, it's these videos. People post their videos, and your videos are posted for everybody to see. They don't have to be a follower, uh, but they're all out there, and, and and then you look at all of the videos that other people are are following, and it's, it's interesting. Let me just say that. It's interesting, and, and uh, what's interesting about it is it's so... Uh, Democratic. I mean, there are all kind of people on TikTok. There are farmers on their John Deere tractor posting TikTok videos, I kid you not. There are young moms that are bored with whatever's going on in their lives, posting videos. There are students, young and old, posting videos. There are folks of every nationality, every ethnicity, every religious tribe. It's all out there on TikTok. And I think one of the goals of people on TikTok, and this is not a put-down, but it seems that for many, it's how can I develop the most followers? Because you can monetize that. I mean, you get into the tens and hundreds of thousands of followers, you can actually commercialize this. We live in a culture where we want to make a name for ourselves. And the only way to make a name for ourselves is everybody's got to know our name. So David, with all due respect, I decided to kind of shift my tack a little bit here. And instead of talking about some of the great matriarchs and great patriarchs of the Bible. I want to share with you Phoebe, Phoebe and Persis, by the way, and, and some of these other names that were read this morning. And by the way, you can thank me later. We didn't read all of chapter 16, go on and read it in your spare time this afternoon, name, after name, after name of someone that if you were quizzed on a Bible drill, you would fail it miserably. I feel confident because they only get the scantest of mentionings in scripture, you got Phoebe, as was mentioned in our children's message here, and I, I was hoping she wasn't going to dig too deeply there, because that gets into my business there, but Phoebe, a deacon in the church, but she only gets this one lousy verse, and what does Paul tell us about her? Well, not much, but it's good. It's thought that perhaps because she headed the list, that she may have been the one entrusted to deliver the letter to Rome. So she had the trust of Paul and she had the respect and she was uh, heralded by Paul. Then there's Priscilla. Priscilla we know a little bit more about because we can read about her along with her husband Aquila in Romans and Acts and first and second Corinthians, second Timothy. In fact, four out of the six references of Priscilla, she's listed before her husband, which was kind of unusual in the ancient times here. We know from this text that she was kind of a tent maker, so she earned her own way in her service. And then there's Persis, which I love that name. I've never, uh, up until uh, serving in Augusta, I didn't know anyone named Persis. We had a Persis in our church, and she's only mentioned once, and all we read about her is, Paul says, greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard for the Lord. That's it. So what does this list of... uh, indistinguishable believers have to say to us this morning, this important day in this important church in the history of this important time. I think that the hope of the Christian faith rests not upon the giants of the faith, but rather it is a reminder that we are part of the greater community of unknowns. Out of 27 names in this chapter, 23 are only mentioned one time. That's it. And Paul commits not a little bit of space by making sure he names everybody. God trusts the good news with the nameless. That may be tough for some of us to swallow when it seems the only thing we pay attention to are those that have the most followers or those that get the billboard attention or those that get all of the limelight. Indeed, preachers are not immune from that either. David, I know you know that all too well. There are pastors that are known for their expensive collection of sneakers as they display them in YouTube videos and such. We are an American idolatry culture after all. When I was a senior in high school, um, I received a letter in the mail that said something like this. Congratulations, you have been selected as one of the great who's who." in high schools, I thought, what? Me? From Eatonton, Georgia? Born and raised on a dairy farm? I must be somebody. And so for $50, I sent to them and received a book that had my name in it. My goodness, I must be something. Now, I didn't know then what I know now that nobody reads that book of who's who among high school students. But nevertheless, I kept it proudly on my resume for a number of years. Everybody wants to feel like they are somebody. But you see, the life about, uh, you see, life is not about celebrities or or culture, the celebrities of commerce, or even celebrities of the church. You have a place on God's who's who list. You are needed. You are important. You are special in God's economy, not because of talent or fame or popularity or intelligence, but because the family of God is primarily populated with the unknown and the unheralded. We are part of this community of unknowns. We're part of this community of underdogs. Now, I, I couldn't hear David's introduction. We were outside and I was talking to Maggie because I can't believe that Maggie's 10 years old. That was just kind of flooring me that words were coming out of her mouth because she was just a baby when, when, when I, I knew her here. But anyway, I'm, uh, I I don't know what David said about me, but one of the things he could have said about me is this guy knows nothing about sports. Which is true. I don't keep up with any sports team, so I don't have loyalties one way or the other. My wife, she's a sports fan. She follows everything. And I'll walk into the living room and she'll, she'll watch, she's watching Quidditch or something. I don't know. And I'll say, well, who are you pulling for? And she goes, well, I don't really uh, have a favorite team, so I'm going to pull for the underdog. My wife loves to pull for the underdog. Not just in terms of athletics, but in life. She finds out you're an underdog you've got a friend. And you know what? That's biblical. That's ecclesiastical. That is what the body of Christ is about. After all, we are a community of unknowns. We are a family of underdogs. I point you back to this text of scripture with Paul, the apostle, where Paul lists not one, but six out of the 27 names are women. Now, I know that doesn't sound very uh, equitable in today's understanding, but in ancient days, it was unheard of to list even one woman. But Paul names six. He points them out and pays attention to them and reminds the Roman Christians, you greet them, you treat them well, you receive them. They are one of us. Rabbis in the ancient days forbidden males from speaking to women in public but Paul is heralding them up because Paul is advocating for the uh, the, the the underdogs Paul here is listing Priscilla and Persis and all of the rest and, and 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 these are the women these are the reminders that this is what the community like First Baptist Carrollton is to be about the biography is about a family of those who are part of God's stories as the unknown and as the underdog it's like the John Prine John Prine sings no we're not the jet set we're the old Chevrolet set but ain't we got love. That could be the theme song of the early church and I say the contemporary church. Not all belong to the esteemed and powerful. Not all belong to the important shakers and movers. The good news is not really concerned about any of that anyway. It's made up of a family of underdogs, the outcasts of society, the marginalized of culture, the ones who usually don't get a voice and the ones whose opinions are rarely regarded. Now, I know how it is in church. I don't want to speak for First Baptist Carrollton, but I was a pastor for 27 years, so I know how it has felt like in my experience. Sunday morning comes, and you have that special visitor come to church. Maybe the mayor. It may be someone running for office in the state. It may be a big wig in cultural terms, and everybody turns to the preacher and say, now, you know, so-and-so's here this morning. They want you to know that we got someone special in our midst, and you better behave yourself. Well, David, you served in Augusta, Georgia, and you know that people show up during the election cycle, but also during that magical one week out of the year where there's some kind of golf tournament happening in Augusta. I never paid much attention to it anyway, but they say it's a big deal. All right. So one particular Sunday, the Sunday uh, for the start of Masters week, Folks are coming in, and you always have visitors during master's week on those parallel sundays and and sure enough, this fellow came up to me, knew he was a visitor, wearing a golf shirt, looked kind of nice khakis and we shook hands, he introduced himself by name, and I said well it's good to have you here i I guess you're visiting from out of town. He said, I am. I, I live in Florida. I said, well, good. Well, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Hope you come back. And as he was about to walk away, I said, now, by the way, are you going to be able to get out to the course this week? He said, well, I sure intend to. I said, great. Once again, hope you come back next time you're in town. About that time, the youth minister, it wasn't David Hughes, the youth minister came up to me and he said, do you know who that was? I said, yeah, it was a visitor. Seemed like a nice guy. He said, you, you 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 don't know who that was. I said, I have no idea. Who are you talking about? I said, that's that's Bernhard Longer. And I just went, All right, Bernhard Longer. Now, some of y'all may not know Bernhard Longer, but he is a pretty well known golfer and was playing the tournament. And he chose to be in church with us before all of the events unfolded. Now he is a, a great guy, at least from what I could tell here. But the thing is, is that we do spend not a little bit of time paying attention to the most important people around us, when we may forget from generation to generation, we are built up by the ones whose name we don't know, the pictures who don't make a difference. It's been true of this church for 175 years, and good Lord willing, 175 years from now, it will still be be true. You all have a part in the larger story, the great narrative of First Baptist Carrollton. That point was brought home to me in my last Sunday at First Baptist Augusta as their pastor. Leading up to that last Sunday, when my resignation was announced, I was moving back to Atlanta, working with a nonprofit and soon to work with Mercer University. Leading up to that Sunday, uh, a, a woman of the congregation, a lady of the congregation came up to me and she said, Greg, I think Kevin's ready to be baptized. I said, well, that's, that's fine. It's not unusual, by the way, for parents and grandparents to say that their child is ready to be baptized, but you need to talk to that child, Right. And so I said, well, that's that's fine. Uh, But in my mind, I thought, I don't know about this. Um, So let me tell you about Kevin. And I had the family's permission to share this story. Kevin came to our church uh, 10 years prior. I had just begun my ministry with the church. Kevin was two years old when he came to our church. He was born with significant developmental disabilities. And because of the environment he was in, uh, he was further abused. His grandmother stepped in, adopted Kevin, and basically came to church the next Sunday and said, here's Kevin. He's with us now, and he's going to be part of our church. Uh, David, I'll never forget staff meeting. We all get together as a staff. Nobody on staff has a special education degree. No one knew what to do We were all having the same conversation. What are we going to do about Kevin? Kevin was two years old. He could not speak. He could not talk. He could not even stand up. He he struggled just to sit up. Kevin was going to have difficulties. We knew this. What are we going to do about Kevin? And in staff meetings, someone said something brilliant. Well, we're just going to love Kevin. We're going to do the best we can, and we're going to love Kevin. So Kevin had adults with him, all thought his ministry, I suppose, even in the youth group had adults with him. So that means when Kevin got older and was singing in preschool choir, he had an adult worker that would hold Kevin by the belt loop because Kevin would run off. He'd learned to run, walk by then hanging on to Kevin. Kevin couldn't sing. Kevin could barely speak. Kevin would just bob his head along to the tune on those Sundays when we had the preschool choir. Kevin moved on to children's choir. Kevin moved on to the youth group. This was, again, before David Hughes was serving this congregation. And Kevin was always with everything we were doing as a church. And so when his grandmother said, I think Kevin's ready to be baptized, I'm ashamed to admit, but I thought, I don't know about that. I mean, what does Kevin understand about the repentance of sin? What does Kevin know about accepting Jesus into his heart to forgive him? What does Kevin know about being baptized? In other words, I was making faith an intellectual assent and not a true transformation of heart. So anyway, we sat in the office, Kevin and I. I excused his grandmother because this is what I do when I sit with children to talk about their faith. I don't need the parents or grandparents interfering. It's between them and the Lord, so to speak. So I said, Kevin, your grandmother tells me you want to be baptized. He nods his head, baptized. Well, Kevin, why do you want to be baptized? I didn't know what to say. Kevin, why do you want to be baptized? And he just simply said, my heart, Jesus. And it occurred to me then to my shame that really is what it is all about. It really is all about. Because you see, Kevin had heard us talk about Jesus loves you, but the more important thing is, is Kevin had seen that Jesus loves him. The children's choir loved him. The preschool choir loved him. The nursery loved him. The youth group loved him. The preacher loved him. The church loved him. Of course, why would he not be baptized? Of course, in his heart is Jesus. So the day of baptism came. Now, Kevin is, I don't know, about 14 at this age. He's a big old boy. And I invited several of his adult workers to get in the baptistry, baptistry with me because Pastor Hughes, I don't know if you've ever had that experience. That sometimes when you do a baptism, everybody gets baptized. I was really worried about this scene that might unfold. I don't know how Kevin's going to react going underwater. But I have his workers all in there. They're just here to help. And again, it was like the scales came down. Because what was being symbolized at First Baptist Augusta was the truth of the gospel. We're all in this water together. We all are in need of immersing ourselves that we die to ourselves only to be raised up to walk in the newness of life. All of us, young and old, rich and poor, black and white, intellectual and non-intellectual, we are all in this together. Paul the Apostle was right to dedicate an entire chapter to a list of unknowns Because the truth of the gospel is carried out from one generation to the next. From one generation to the next. Of the unknowns and the underdogs and all of the rest. This is our hope. So the subtext of Paul holds true that the good news can be trusted with the credentialed and the uncredentialed, the upper class and the low class and the middle class, the degree, the pedigreed and the undegreed to the unknown, the underdog and all of the rest. Name after name, Paul brings his greetings and he lists the attributes and he shares his affection. He knows that this movement of God has a list with your name on. it. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Now, Lord, let us find our name on your list for this church and for the kingdom's sake, we pray. Amen.